Romans chapter six, this is basically the same thing that Wendell was talking about right here. Let me bring you back to where we were. We, yesterday, we, last night, I talked about Romans chapter six, verses one through 16. And we talked about why do you live holy? If God loves us by grace, why live holy? The first reason he gave is because you're dead to sin. If, if you are truly born again, you ought to want to live for God. If you are taking grace and saying, man, this is awesome. I can go live in sin. Then you ought to get born again. Because when you get born again, God changes your nature. You're dead to sin. And any person that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. First John chapter three, verse three. The second reason that he gives in verse 16 is that every time you yield yourself to sin, you yield yourself to Satan, who is the author of that sin. And he only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. So even though God is not holding sin against you, sin is a direct inroad of Satan into your life and you're going to have problems. You know, I preach grace about as strong as anybody I know. And yet I'll have people come to me and they'll ask, why is it that I'm struggling? And often I'll tell them it's because you are just full of sin. You got unforgiveness, you're bitter. And it's not that God is withholding his healing, but you have allowed Satan to negate your faith by yielding to him and cooperating to him. You don't want to give Satan that inroad. So there are consequences to sin. And that's what this is saying. So we ended with verse 16 in verse 17. This is Romans chapter six. And in verse 17, it says, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. And again, just to refresh your memory, this is talking about you were servants or slaves is what that word is to this old sinful nature. You were by nature a sinner. And the reason you sinned is because that was your nature. You were servants to sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin. And again, this is not individual sins. A Christian can still sin and does, but you are free from that sin nature. It is dead. You became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of man because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. In other words, the same way that you used to serve the devil, you need to serve God with the same passion. You need to be as committed to living holy as you were to living unholy. And now look at these verses. This is really powerful. Verse 21, verse 20, it says, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Again, servants here is the word slave. And to sin is talking about this sin nature, which if you were here last night, I spent most of the night talking about how that our sin nature is dead. It is crucified with Christ. It does not resurrect every morning. You don't have an old sin nature. What you've got is an unrenewed mind that continues to function the way it was programmed under the old sinful nature. But when you were servants of sin, when you were Before you were born again, when you were being controlled and dominated by that sin nature, you were free from righteousness. What does it mean, free from righteousness? It doesn't mean that you can't do anything right. Unbelievers do good things. Unbelievers love people who love them. 
You know, every unbeliever does something good. This isn't saying that you can't do something good, but it's saying that that righteousness cannot change your sinful nature. A lost man's good works don't change his nature. You are by nature. God is a spirit. God deals with us based on the spirit. And it doesn't matter how much good a person does if their nature has never been changed, if they have never received Jesus as their Lord and been born again, which is the phrase that Jesus used to describe becoming a new creature on the inside about your nature being changed. If your nature never gets changed, that's what sends men to hell, not their individual actions. You could live a holier life than any person in here, but if you have a sinful nature, your sin nature will send you to hell. You need to be changed at your nature, your core. And so before you get born again, you can do good things. You can do good works. You could give, you could help somebody. There are even lost people that have laid down their life for somebody else and died in battle or something like that. Or you come to the defense of somebody who's being attacked. You can do good things, but good actions or righteous works don't change your sinful nature. I think most people agree with that. And that's clearly what verse 20 is saying. In verse 21, it says, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But in verse 22, he uses the exact same terminology, but now he changes the application. He reverses the order here and he says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God. In verse 20, servants to sin was talking about before you got born again, when you were a slave to that old sin nature. Now it talks about a servant to God. This is talking about after you're born again and your nature has been changed. In verse 20, it says you were free from sin. That didn't mean that you couldn't sin. It just meant that that sin, I mean, excuse me. I said that wrong, wasn't I? You were free from righteousness in verse 20. It didn't mean that you couldn't do right things. It just meant that that righteous act could not change your sinful nature. Now it uses the exact same terminology, but applies it to your Uh, you're free from sin. This doesn't mean that a Christian can't sin, but it means that that sin that a Christian commits can't change your righteous nature any more than your good acts could change your sinful nature. That is a major point right there. And see, there's a lot of people that they see sin in a person's actions and they think that if you sin, then it corrupts your nature. And really the scripture is teaching all of these verses. Uh, Romans chapter five, I talked about some of that yesterday, but these verses are saying it's not your sins that made you a sinner. It's your sin nature that made you sin. The Bible is dealing with who you are on a spirit level and your actions are just the fruit, the byproduct of your nature. The reason a sinner sins is because it's his nature to sin. The reason a Christian lives holy is because it's your nature to sin. But can a lost man do something good? Yes, but that goodness can't change his nature. In the same way, can a Christian do something wrong and sin? Absolutely, but that sin doesn't change your righteous nature. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit 
And sin does not penetrate the seal of the Holy Spirit around your spirit. Your spirit retains its righteousness and holiness. It is never contaminated by your sin any more than your sinful nature was purified by your good works. Man, that is strong stuff right there. If people believe that, it would change this whole thing that there's many Pentecostal types that believe in save, loss, save, loss, save, loss, born again, 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 again. Every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you got to get back in right standing with God. That isn't what the scriptures teach. And I tell you, it's, it's devastating to a person's relationship with the Lord to think that every time you sin, and if you were to die with that unconfessed sin, you would go to hell. If I really believed that that was true, then when you get saved, I'd just kill you. Because that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. If, the, if you had to have every sin confessed, you'd never make it. That just puts all of the burden of salvation on you. It makes you the Savior. You've got to do all of these things. No, you were saved by grace through faith, and you were given a new nature. Now, if you go out and sin, just like these other verses we were using, just like Wendell was teaching this morning, that still is an inroad of Satan into your life and you should not sin. There are consequences to your sin, but that sin doesn't change your nature. You don't lose your salvation. You don't lose your right standing with God when you sin. Man, that is an awesome, awesome truth. And somebody says, well, why are you so excited about that? So you can go live in sin? No. I want to live for God and I live for God the most I can and I seek the Lord and I'm, I'm doing everything I know to live a holy life, but I don't do it perfectly. I get upset by things that I shouldn't get upset by. I get uh, mad at times. I do things and when I do, it is so awesome to know that, Father, this did not destroy my relationship with you. I didn't lose your love. I didn't lose my right standing with you. And somebody says, well, if you confess it, you don't. Even if I don't confess it, God still loves me the same. I wish I had time to teach on this, but you were forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. God still loves me even if I don't confess it. And even if I do something wrong, God's love for me doesn't change. But if I have yielded myself to Satan, now Satan has a legal right into my life. And even though God still loves me, even though my spirit is still pure, I am going to have problems because I have given Satan the authority in my life to come and destroy me. And so how do I deal with that? That's what 1 John 1, 9 is given for is that you confess that. The word confess here just means to say the same thing. In other words, you were saying, God, I think my opinion's better than your opinion. You did it your own way. You decided to do your own thing. But now that Satan has taken advantage of this because you went out and lived in sin, you finally humble yourself and you say, God, you were right. I was wrong. I confess that I missed it and your way was better. And you come back into agreement with God. You confess that sin. And when that happens, your spirit's already been forgiven. But now the forgiveness that is in your spirit flows out through your soul and through your body. And now Satan loses his legal right to hinder you and to dominate you. So if you commit a sin and you find out that Satan has gained access to you through that, you ought to be quick to confess it and repent and turn from it, not so that God could love you, but so that Satan will not have access to you. 
And I know that there's many people that still struggle with that. And you say, I I believe you've got to have it confessed. If you really believe that you've got to have every sin confessed, it's impossible for you to maintain salvation. Because I guarantee you there's things that you do wrong that you don't even realize are wrong. Somebody says, well, if I don't realize it's wrong, then it's not really sin. That's not what the Bible says. In the Old Testament, people were guilty of sins even when they didn't know it was wrong. Now, when they became aware of it, there was a greater consequence, but there were sins of ignorance and they had sacrifices for people who had sinned ignorantly and they had one sacrifice for the entire nation once every year for all of the sins that people weren't even aware of. You know, I've heard there was a guy here in Colorado Springs who preached that if you committed adultery and you were driving home after committing adultery and had a car wreck and you hadn't confessed that sin, that you'd die and go to hell. And there's a lot of people who say, well, I agree with that. But, you know, again, the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. That means that adultery isn't the only sin. Everything. Did you know gossip, bitterness, anger, criticism? There's some people that are just negative. It's a sin. Jesus said it's a, it, uh, excuse me, over in the book of Deuteronomy, God said that it was a sin not to be thankful and to glorify him for all of his goodness. So being unthankful is a sin. It's listed as a sin. Second Corinthians or excuse me, second Timothy chapter three, around verse two or three, it says that they were unthankful, unholy. It's listed right next to murder and everything else. If you aren't praising God the way that you should, it's a sin. We were given a commandment to give glory due unto his name. We ought to be thanking him, pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks. I could go on and on and on. Sin is not only the big 10 that you miss, but sin is being thankful, operating in love and mercy, turning the other cheek and on and on and on it goes. And so somebody says, well, I believe if you commit adultery and had a car wreck before you got time to uh, confess it and died, you'd go to hell. Well, what about if you go 56 miles an hour, which it also says that you're supposed to obey the laws of the land. And what if you don't confess that and have a car wreck and died in a car wreck? Does that mean that you go to hell? Most people would say, oh, absolutely not. Why? Because you often go 56 miles an hour, amen. (laughs) And you just don't think that God's going to hold that against you. Again, sin is sin. If committing adultery and not getting it confessed before you die, then going 56 miles an hour and not confessing that before you die is sin. And being bitter and the way some of you think about me and the things that I'm saying is sin. (laughs) See, if you start saying that, well, you've got to have every sin confessed and God is only going to still love you if your sins are confessed and repented of, then it's... You can't live that way because we constantly are falling short. None of us love as we should. None of us study the word as we should. None of us do anything as we should. Every one of us fails to be the person that we should be. There's not a one of us in here that is absolutely perfect in our actions. 
And if you believe that you've got to have every sin repented of, you've either got to be perfect or every sin's got to be repented of, then you're never going to access the joy and the peace in the relationship with God. I'm telling you that God loves you because he, when you made him your Lord, he gave you a new nature and he is a spirit and he looks at you in the spirit and that spirit does not fluctuate based on your sin. It has been sealed and sin will enter into your body and it'll enter into your soul, into your mind and emotions and it'll condemn you and it'll give Satan access to poverty and sickness and all kinds of other problems. But it doesn't penetrate the seal around your spirit. Your spirit retains its righteousness and holiness. If I had time, I could teach you over in second Uh, or in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 14, you've been sanctified and perfected forever, not just until the next time you sin, but you've been sanctified and perfected forever in your spirit. It never changes. And since God is a spirit, he deals with you based on who you are in the spirit. God's love for you does not fluctuate based on your performance. But your performance is still important because Satan's access to you fluctuates based on your performance. And when you do not perform well, you give Satan an inroad into your life and you had better quit doing that because he is out to steal, kill, and to destroy. If you let him, he will eat your lunch and pop the bag. Amen. You don't want to do that. And so notice it says right here in verse 22, but now being made free from sin, that doesn't mean you can't sin, but that sin does not change who you've become in the spirit. It doesn't change your righteous nature and become servants to God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Fruit or excuse me, holiness Our godliness is a fruit of salvation, not the root. Religion as a whole has preached, you be holy, act holy, and you become holy. But the scripture is just the opposite. You get born again, created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 24. And then holiness is the fruit. It's the byproduct. It's the end results of a relationship with the Lord. And the more you focus on who you are in Christ, the more you understand that you are dead to sin, that you no longer are a slave to sin, then the more fruit to holiness you will have because what you focus on, as you think in your heart, that's the way you're gonna be. If you think that I'm righteous and I'm holy and I'm pure and I'm free and I don't have to be this way anymore, you will manifest greater holiness in your life than if you go around, well, I'm an old sinner. I've been a reprobate my whole life. Now I'm forgiven, but bless God, that's still my core nature. If that's, if that's who you value yourself, you will become that. You will be who you think you are. You know, I could spend a lot of time on this. I just want to say this and move on. But there's a lot of people in here that you were told from the time that you were a kid that you were a failure, that, you know, something that you were just cursed saying you'll never amount to anything. Or maybe it wasn't just as a kid, but maybe you had some major failure in your life. You were a drug addict or you were an alcoholic or you had a a divorce and your ex told you that you were just the pits and you have let these curses come on you and you have accepted these things said and you see yourself as a failure 
in some area. It becomes like a ceiling. You cannot rise above what you see yourself being. Like I said, I could spend hours on this. I've got a teaching out there entitled Taking the Limits Off God. And I got a 10 year later um, teaching backing this up saying taking the limits off God uh, times 10 or don't limit God times 10. And what that's talking about is that in 2002, the Lord told me that my small thinking was limiting what God could do in my life. And anyway, I could spend hours telling you about that. But when I saw this and changed the way I saw myself, not saw myself in Christ, but saw myself in the flesh, what God could do with me. And I started saying, I will do what God has called me to do. I mean, this ministry exploded. Here we are today. We're going to go up there and show you a building that this whole project, the first phase is $32 million and we're less than $4 million away from having it paid for. Back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that was impossible. It has totally transformed. And it was because I saw myself as inadequate for doing things like that. I had to change the way I saw myself. The way you see yourself becomes a limiter, a ceiling. And there are many of you that see yourself as a failure because of things that happened when you were a kid, because of something happened. And until you change the way you see yourself, you'll never break free of that. You've got to see yourself in Christ. Recognize you're a new person and recognize that that old part of you that did these things is dead, gone, and non-existent. And it's not what other people say about you that holds you back. It's what you say about yourself. You know, the spies went into the promised land, Numbers chapter 13, and 10 of them came back and said, they are giants and we're grasshoppers. And they said, so were we in our own sight. It doesn't matter what the giants say about you. It doesn't matter what the devil says about you or anybody else says about you. Nobody else can limit you unless you see yourself the way that they describe you. That was the problem. It didn't matter what the giants said about them. The problem was they said, so were we in our own sight. They saw themselves as grasshoppers compared to the giants, except two of them. Caleb and Joshua, they said, we're well able to do it. These people are bred for us. And you know what? They're the only ones who live through the whole thing and they got to inherit the promised land. It's the same thing with us. You've got to quit seeing yourself as this old sinner saved by grace, but you still by nature are a corrupted, inferior being that, you know, cancer and sickness is bigger than you. Poverty is bigger than you. You see this reflected, you know, in the, uh, what the people are calling the great recession that happened in 2008. And many Christians just immediately bought into this. And because everybody else was talking about recession and everybody else was talking about problems, they said, well, we're only human. And they immediately planned on failure. And guess what? It worked. But it was 2009, right after this huge downturn. And did you know we have access to hundreds of parachurch ministries in Colorado Springs? I mean, there are hundreds of uh, parachurch ministries. We know many of them. And we know that these people, before their finances decrease, before anything happened, they begin to start planning on a 15, 20, 25% decrease. And guess what? They got it. 
But that's right. When the Lord spoke to me about, I had limited him and we needed to start expanding. And we've taken on a 50 something million dollar building program. The first phase, $32 million. During this recession, we have increased. We went on TBN, which by the time you add up the television time and our expense for handling it is over a million, nearly a million and a half dollars a month. Just to do that would have been huge to be able to go on TBN and absorb all of this cost. We've not only done that, we've added this $32 million project to it and we're prospering and it's working. And I'm telling you, it's because I see myself now able to do that. If you see yourself as a sinner, if you see yourself as inferior to what the news is saying about the economy. And well, I'm only human. And after, you know, if you see that job is your source instead of God as being your source, you are limiting God. I'm trying to say that it's important how you see yourself. You need to see that my holiness, my good works aren't what make you right with God. You are made right with God in your nature. It was a gift that was given unto you. You are the righteousness of God. And now holiness and good works should follow, but they are the fruit, not the root of salvation. That is not what produces God in your life. That is not what gains you access to God, but it should be the response of any person who's truly encountered God, you ought to have a love for God, a love for people, and you ought to be walking in these things. Man, that is, that is just so powerful. I don't know how people miss that, except that we've had a lot of help misunderstanding it. In verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, A lot of things could be said about that. Let's go into Romans chapter seven. In verse one, he says, know ye not brethren, for I I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. And now he begins to compare this to a relationship in marriage between a man and a wife. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, She is loosed from the law of her husband. This needs a little bit of explanation because, you know, in the New Testament, things change. But in the Old Testament, man, if a woman married a man, there was zero chance for divorce. A man could divorce a woman, but a woman could not divorce a man. The woman was bound by the law to her husband and there was no such thing as divorce. And so some people don't have that perspective, but that's what he's talking about right here. The only way that a woman could get out of that marriage was for the old man to die. And so he's making this comparison that in a sense, our body and our soul was like the woman and our spirit, our nature, that old sinful nature was the old man. And the law was given to that old sinful nature to bring it out, to show how vile it was so that people would quit trusting in their own goodness and have to come to God for salvation. And so the law dominated people as long as they have an old man. If there's any person who's not born again, you are under the law. 
In uh, John chapter three, the last verse right there, after it, you know, says these wonderful things about that God commended his love toward us. And that while, or excuse me, that's Romans 5, 8. That's a good one. But John three sixteen says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, uh, how does it go on? Anyway, he does anyway. What's the next verse? Can you go to verse 17 here? I, I know it. I just went blank. Like the screen. <laughs> so what does it say? He sent not his son to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And it talks about that there is no condemnation and stuff. But the last verse of John chapter three, let me just turn over here and read this. It says, um, All right, here it is. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The law was the wrath of God. A person who is not under the law, God has suspended his wrath during this period of grace, but the wrath of God is hanging over them. If they don't accept Jesus, there is coming a wrath upon them. And stuff. And so the law still has effect as long as you have an old man. But if the old man is dead, you are loosed from that law, is what this is saying. Look in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 3. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And in this comparison that he's using, he's basically saying, if you still have an old man and yet are married to Christ, you're living in adultery. We aren't living in adultery. Your old man is dead. Therefore, the law doesn't apply to you anymore. It was given to regulate the old man and your old man died. Now you're free to marry Christ. And you are supposed to only be married to Christ. You are not married to the old man. Now, again, like I was teaching last night, what it says over here in verse five and six, there is a body that the old man left behind, which is what I believe the scripture calls the flesh. And I'll be talking about this here in just a few minutes. But the flesh is a term that describes not just the skin on your body, but it's the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, And it literally means the flesh as stripped of skin. And it's, so it's talking about meat and stuff like this. And it's talking about that your flesh is the part of you that's not born again, not your spirit, but the flesh is talking about your body and soul, specifically the unrenewed mind and the rest of you. That's the flesh. And this is going to use this terminology right here in just a minute. So, but your old man is dead and man, it's liberating to find that out. And that now you can walk free things that you used to be afraid to do because you know, I'd be a hypocrite to do it. Now you are dead to that and you can act, you can love people. You can walk in grace and all of these things because that old man is dead. So in verse four, he says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead 
to the law by the body of Christ. Because when you were baptized into the body of Christ, over here in verses two and three of Romans chapter six, you were baptized into his death. You died to that sin nature. So through your baptism into Christ, you are now dead to that old man that you should be married to another, even him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Here it is again, your holiness, your good actions are the byproduct of relationship with God, not the way to obtain relationship with God. In verse five, for when we were in the flesh, here is that word flesh. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure what verse I looked this up in the NIV, uh, this morning. I forget exactly now which verse it is. We'll get to it in a minute, but the NIV typically uses the word sin nature to substitute for what the King James calls the flesh. And I believe that they totally miss it. They miss this thing that you are dead to that sin nature. And they constantly are using this thing about that your sin nature is causing you to do this. It's not the sin nature, it's the flesh. It's the residual old man. It's the unrenewed mind that the old nature left behind. But it is not your sin nature that is causing these things. So in verse five, it says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins. Now notice this is sins, plural. This is talking about the actions of sins, which were by the law did work in our members. The word members is not talking about your born again spirit, but it's talking about your external, your actions, your thoughts and things like this did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held. That's talking about your sin nature is what held you in bondage to the law and you are dead to that sin nature. So therefore you're dead to the law. Man, I don't know how people miss this. I guess it's because, you know, very few people let the word of God get in the way of what they believe. They just believe something and this is what they believe, but this is what the word says. You are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The oldness of the letter is talking about the Old Testament law where you had to do all of these actions and things like this. The same terminology was used in Second Corinthians chapter 3 when it talked about that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so in verse seven, it says, what should we say then is the law sin? You know, again, this is just like what I was sharing last night about if you truly preach grace, you're going to have this question come up. Can I just live in sin? And if you don't preach grace that way so that that question never comes up, then you aren't preaching the same grace that the apostle Paul preached. Likewise, if you truly preach on freedom from all of these laws and having to do everything to be right with God, the question will come up, or is the law sin? Was the law bad? And of course, the answer to this is no, God forbid. The law is good if you use it for what it was intended for. The law wasn't intended to set you free. It was intended to make that sin nature rise up so that you could see it and recognize that even though maybe you made a new year's resolution and you no longer dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. And you just think that you're awesome. Here's this sin nature. And it just shows you that you still need a savior. It was to take away self-righteousness and make us despair of saving ourselves so that we'd call out to God. 
You know, here's an example. When we were kids, I'm sure every one of you have done this, but when we were kids, we would dare people to do stuff. I dare you. And in Texas, we'd say, I double dog dare you. You couldn't turn down a double dog dare. You were a wimp if you did. And we would dare people and they knew they shouldn't do it. They knew it wasn't smart. I remember trying to get a kid to walk across this log across a creek that it had just rained and it was swollen. And I knew he was going to fall. He knew he was going to fall, but I dared him. I said, you can't do it. I dare you. And you know what? The moment you do something like that, something just rises up. When people say you can't do it, bless God, I will do it. And you know what? It causes you to go out and do the very thing that you were told not to do. That's what the law did. God made us not to be ruled over. I believe he created a sense of liberty and freedom inside of every person. He didn't want us to be ruled over by laws. And there's just something inside of every person that resents being told you have to do this. Even if it's something you want to do. If somebody makes you do it, it takes all of the joy out of it. You don't like being told you have to do things. You know, I used to do a lot of races, jogging and stuff. And I ran in Woodland Park. I was turning in my best time. I was just totally exhausted on this 10K race, 6.2 miles. And I was a quarter of a mile from the finish line and I had given it all I had, but I'm a competitor. Jamie could tell you, I am a competitor. And uh, anyway, this guy started to pass me and he could tell that I tried to keep up with him and I just didn't have it. And so anyway, he was pulling away from me and he got a few strides in front of me and he looked back over his shoulder and he says, you could do better than that. And man, when he said that, I never, you know, anyway, I just, (laughs) something came over me and man, boom, I shot past this guy. I beat him by a hundred yards in the last quarter of a mile. And when I got to the finish line, I absolutely collapsed. I don't know where that came from. But when somebody says thou shalt not, something rises up and says, bless God, I shall. And see, God knew that that's the way we were. So for those who were thinking that, oh God, I've changed myself and I'm really awesome now and I don't have any problems with sin. I've beat sin. God says, you think you've beat sin. All he had to do is say, thou shalt not. And something on the inside of us, that sin nature immediately wanted to rebel and go out and do the very thing that we were told not to do. That's what all of these scriptures Say, that's what 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. All of those things are saying those exact same things. The law didn't set you free from sin, but it actually made sin come alive on the inside of you. If I can talk fast enough, I'm getting to these verses right here. You know, I heard um, Malcolm Smith give this example long, long time ago, 30 years ago. And he said, if you could imagine a bull laying in a pasture... And this bull gets convicted about how mean it is. And it charges every person that comes through that pasture. And so this bull gets to saying, I shouldn't be this way. And so this bull says, I'm changing. From now on, I'm not a bull, I'm a sheep. And I am not gonna charge anybody. I'm not gonna be mean. You know what? That might be a good resolution. It might be a good thing to do. But that bull is by nature a bull. And it's, 
it's, uh, it's deceived. It's not doing service to that bull for it to go around and start trying to baa like a sheep and think that it's a sheep just because it decided to be different. It needs to change its nature. So if a bull was in deception like that, you know, all you got to do to bring it out of that deception, just walk out there and wave a red flag at it. And all of a sudden that old bull nature rises up and this bull all of a sudden realizes, whoops, I'm still a bull. You know what? For those who thought, God, I've overcome my sin and I'm changing. I'm really a good person now and I don't need salvation. I've saved myself. God says, you think you got it? Thou shalt not. And all of a sudden, all of this sin rose up on the inside of us. The law didn't make us sin. The law just simply drew out, took the covering off, showed us how sinful we were. And that's what these verses are saying. So look at this again in verse seven. What should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid I had not known sin, but by the law for the, uh, I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet, but sin taking occasion by the commandment. The commandment gave sin an occasion, an opportunity against you. It wrought in you all manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence is uncontrolled, unrestrained lust or desire. For without the law, sin was dead. The law made sin come alive in the next verse. In verse nine, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Notice the commandment didn't make sin come. Sin was already there, but it was dead. It was dormant until the law came. The law activated sin. And it goes on to talk about the motions of sin, which are by the law. The law empowered sin. You know, it's a, it's a mistake that people make that they think if I preach in my church, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you talk against adultery every week and you preach against adultery, that that's going to stop adultery. It'll do just the opposite. It'll make people go out and commit adultery. And I know some of you don't think that's true, but it's true. You go to focusing people's attention on this thing and talking about how evil it is and dangling that in front of them. And there's just, it's just something inside of us that wants what we can't have. You know, if for some reason you don't even like chocolate, I bet you there's not very many people in here like that. But if you didn't like chocolate and if you were never tempted to eat chocolate, If I was to tell you, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll go one year without eating chocolate. Some of you that don't even eat chocolate, don't even like chocolate, you'd say, man, I'll take that one. But you know what? If that was hanging over your head, you would go to thinking about chocolate. It would become a problem. And probably every person in here, even the ones that don't like chocolate, would wind up lusting. If you didn't eat it, you would at least lust for it when you've never had it before. When you tell somebody you can't have it, there's just something on the inside that makes sin come alive and it makes sin revive. You know, this specifically is talking about that there is a time in every person's life. We are born with a sin nature. There's many scriptures, but... David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't talking about he was conceived out of wedlock. He was just saying, I was born with this sin nature. We, Adam reproduced in his own likeness and the sinful nature was passed on. So every one of us was born with a sinful nature. 
but it's not imputed unto us when there is no law. Romans chapter five, verse 13. Sin isn't imputed when there is no law. So even though a little baby is born with a sin nature that's not held against them or imputed until the time comes that they knowingly start violating the law. And when the law comes and they knowingly transgress the law, then the sin nature that they had revives and they die. They were born with the sin nature, but it's not held against them. That's the reason that if a child dies, they don't go to hell. They go into the presence of God until they reach that time where they knowingly become a transgressor. And then the sin nature on the inside of them Uh, is activated. That's what Paul was talking about. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And verse 10, and the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Did you know the commandment, if you could have kept it, could have produced right standing with God. If you would have kept every precept of the law, if you never missed it in one detail, then that could have granted you relationship with God. But the problem is nobody has ever kept it except Jesus. Every one of us has failed. So the commandment, which was holy and just and good and could have produced life if you could have kept it, because all of us were born sinners, it actually was a ministration of death. That's what it's called over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, a ministration of death. And it ministered death unto us. So the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. None of us could keep it. The law wasn't the problem. It was our sin nature and sinfulness that was the problem. And because the law was perfect and holy and we weren't, then the law became an agent of death and an agent of condemnation to us. In verse 13, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, notice again, singular, talking about this sin nature, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The reason that the law was given was to reveal your sin to you and to make you so despair of ever having relationship with God based on your goodness that you would quit trying to base it on your performance and you would receive it as a gift. And if you use the law for that purpose, to bring a person to their need for Christ and to show them what they need to do, then it's good. And we use those verses over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But to use the law to dominate a Christian's life is not good because it only gives you knowledge of sin. It makes you guilty. It makes sin come alive. It gives occasion to sin. The New Testament, we have new laws. Let me turn over here to John chapter 13 and show you what Jesus said in John chapter 13. This is the night before his crucifixion, right after he had taken communion with his disciples and some of his very last instructions before they went out to the Mount of Olives. And it says in John chapter 13, 
And in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, if you took this same reasoning, again, for uh, time's sake, I'm not gonna turn over there, but in Hebrews chapter seven and chapter eight, he makes this exact same thing. He says a new commandment and he begins to quote from Jeremiah 31, a prophecy about how that there was gonna be a new covenant, a new relationship. And it says specifically in the fact that he says that there is a new, it has made the first old and the old is now ready to vanish away. And he was talking about the old covenant. Well, this is saying, I give you a new commandment. Using that exact same logic, this means that the old commandments have now vanished and passed away. And here is the new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, often people will say, Jesus was asked about this in Matthew chapter 21. This was before the new covenant was put into effect. And, and somebody said, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love God. And the second is like unto it that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quotation from um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. And people will often quote that as being the greatest commandments. Did you know that this commandment to love as God has loved you is greater than loving your neighbor as yourself? They aren't the same thing. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not the same as loving others as God has loved you. This is a superior covenant. And he's saying a new commandment. This isn't the same as Leviticus 19, 7. Loving God as God has, I mean, loving others as God has loved us is superior to you loving other people as you love yourself. We have been given a superior law. We are under a new covenant. And I know some of you right now are thinking, so you just think that we ought to do away with the old commandments and stuff. I'm saying that we don't live by them anymore. If you would live by loving others the way that Christ loved us, that supersedes the Old Testament law. Some people have come back to me and said, now, wait a minute. We're delivered from the ceremonial law, the feast days, eating certain foods and stuff like that, but we still got to keep the 10 commandments. Look at this one last scripture over here in second Corinthians chapter three. I've referred to this a couple of times today. Second Corinthians chapter three and in verse six, who hath also made, who also hath made us able ministers of the new Testament, not of the letter for the spirit, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter there is talking about the old Testament law in verse seven. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Talking about that this Old Testament covenant, even though it was glorious, it's to be done away. It is not still in effect. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? Look at this in verse seven. It says the ministration of death. It doesn't call it a ministration of life. It's a ministration of death. It's exactly what we've been reading over here in Romans chapter seven. That was the law 
was, it was given to kill and we are now dead to that. We're delivered from it. It says the ministration of death written and engraven in stones. Did you know the only part of the Old Testament law that was written and engraven in stones was the 10 commandments. The ceremonial laws weren't written and engraven in stones. This is a direct reference to the 10 commandments that they are done away. Now, does this mean that, you know, I am against putting the 10 commandments up in our public buildings as some people are talking about? No, because there's a purpose for them. It's to show you a standard of right and wrong. And for people that don't have this superior law of loving other people as God has loved us, they need to know what is right and wrong. And there's still a place for it. I read the Old Testament a lot. I probably study the Old Testament more than I study in the New Testament, but I study it in light of the New Testament. I go back and see what I've been redeemed from. And you know, if I wanted to know, am I supposed to lie to this person? You know, maybe for instance, you're a salesman or something and you aren't going to just totally lie, but you aren't going to tell the truth about your product. You're only going to present the good side and you aren't going to present the fallacies. And if they ask you, you're going to skirt that. And you say, well, I'm not, I haven't lied. You can go back to the 10 commandments that were written and engraven in stones. And it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. See, it's not a matter of just whether it is technically a lie or not. Is it leaving a false impression? Are you manipulating the facts? Are you twisting things? Are you presenting only the bad things about your opponents and only the good things about yourself and leaving a false impression? If you want to know, should I do this? Should I follow the way that I was taught to do it? Or how would God want me to do it? You can go back to the law and see what the perfect standard is. And there's still benefit to that. There's still benefit. You can go into the law and see that when you built a balcony, you had to put a railing around your balcony. And if you didn't have a railing around it, and if somebody fell off, you were responsible for whatever happened to them. So in the New Testament, that shows us that there, you are accountable for taking uh, you know, reasonable precautions when you do things. And if you don't do it, you have liability. That's where we get a lot of our laws from about, you know, liability when you go sue people is because you can still go back to there. You can still profit from it. But to say that I've got to do all of these things and if I miss it, that God is angry at me, which is what the law does. The law doesn't only tell you what's right and wrong, but it says if you miss it, this curse comes upon you instead of the blessing. To adopt the law mentality is wrong. We've been delivered from it. God gave us a new command and this new command supersedes everything else. If you loved other people the way that God has loved us, I guarantee you, you would never lie to them. You wouldn't manipulate. You wouldn't hurt them. You wouldn't steal from them. You wouldn't do any of these things. You know, I saw something on the news just recently about somebody had a bunch of stuff stolen from them. They were evacuated because of these fires, packed all of their valuables in their car, and then they were in a hotel and somebody broke into their car and stole everything that they had. And most of it wasn't things that were monetarily, it was just, you know, pictures and family records and stuff. And the woman was just saying, please bring it back. I won't, it doesn't mean anything. You can't sell it. You can't make money. And she was just talking about how much it hurt her. See, somebody might think, well, these are rich folks. Black Forest primarily were some of the more well-to-do people. And they may think, well, they've got insurance. And you know what? This is just free. What's it hurting? 
You're hurting a person. God would never treat a person that way. And if you loved others the way that Christ has loved us, well, then I guarantee you'd never do anything like that to a person. And that's the law that we're under. We've got a new command to love others the way that God has loved us. That beats every other command that was given. If you fulfill that one command, you'll fulfill all of them. Amen. Praise God. So anyway, I'm out of time and not out of things to say, not out of scriptures, but we will continue tonight. Praise the Lord. I tell you, it's awesome to find out that you have been delivered from all of these things. You know, again, we are going to take a break here for about, let's take a, say a 17 minute break. That'll put us back at 1115. Okay. And we'll start our next session at 1115.